Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Scientists at Sea, brought to you by Exeter Marine. Back in February, Katie spoke to Alex Smalley at the European Centre for Environment and Human Health. Alex's work uh, studies the impact that nature can have on psychological restoration, both in the real world and in virtual reality. Um, To help illustrate this, you might hear some soundscapes that we've added to the interview uh, in the background, so listen out for those. Alex is an excellent science communicator and has quite a background in that, so I think you're really going to enjoy this one. Uh, So without further ado, let's get into it. Hi Alex, so thank you very much for joining us today. It's really great to get to talk to you. Um, So I guess as a starting point, it would be really helpful for you just to give us a little bit of a background about what you sort of actually do here. So I'm a PhD student that's looking at the effects that nature can have on psychological restoration, so helping to make people feel better in times of stress. And I'm specifically trying to do that using virtual reality, so to bring some of these effects to people who can't get out into nature at the time that they might be experiencing stress or some kind of mental fatigue. But that's not where I started life. Okay. Actually, my undergraduate degree was uh, atmospheric physics. Okay. Um, and I thought I wanted to be a meteorologist. I tried that for a bit and it <laughs> turned out that wasn't great. Um, well, you know, it just wasn't for me. Um, and then I entered into sort of a very mixed bag of a career. I worked at the BBC for a while. I worked at DEFRA. Um, I worked at a private consultancy before ending up in university research. And for the last eight or nine years, I've been doing that in a communications capacity, so helping researchers to talk about their research in an accessible way. But I couldn't, over that time, resist the pull (laughs) to get my own research, and so now I do both. Okay, that's really interesting. So you've come come over to the dark side, perhaps, as it were, of the scientific research side of things. (laughs) It absolutely is the dark side. (laughs) So really, you sort of come into this from the background of the science communication pull. So I think one of the places that you've come from with this recently is the BBC Soundscape Experiment, which was linked to their Forest 404 podcast, which was quite an interesting exploration into those, those sort of nature settings. So... I saw on the soundscape experiment that it had some really impressive engagement figures, actually. So I don't know if you've got any little teasers of where you might have gone with the analysis on those figures so far. Anything come further of that yet? Or are you still in too early stages? We are in early stages, but I can give some sort of tease for the, <laughs> for, for the early results that are starting to show. But as a project, Forest 404 was this incredible sort of endeavour that came about through serendipity that I was about (laughs) to start my research with a slightly different focus although I definitely wanted to do something around sound and the way that sound could be restorative Um, but the BBC at the time were working with the University of Bristol and they decided to do something around uh, a radio-based drama and we'd been having some conversations with the natural history unit around how we might do something with the programming that they do and to understand how that could have an impact on well-being. And so as a a project, all of a sudden, Forest 404 became this sort of multi-institution collaboration. Um, And as you say, once the drama launched and the experiment launched alongside it, um, we had this incredible response to to the experiment. And the podcast was downloaded something like 1.4 million times. Oh my gosh, that's incredible numbers. Between April and July. (laughs) Um, 
And we managed to harvest a very modest 7,500 from that, um, participants who took part in the experiment. But to put that number in context, typical studies in this area around sound and restoration tend to use between sort of 50 and 150 wow. typically undergraduate psychology students. Yeah. Um, so 7,500, you know, really members puts of the us, public. Yeah, yeah, members of the public, a really broad mix of yeah. people have taken part across age groups. Just um, a much bigger data opportunity. Which is really, that's the key. The size of the data allows us to be much more, um, detect much more sensitive relationships, uh, but also be able to make much broader generalisations than just using a specific part of the population. So you've mentioned a few times about the idea of sounds and in restoration, um, nature sounds specifically. So can you give us a bit of a, an insight into what sorts of sounds you're talking about and, and how those can be effective? Well, it's really interesting that we're here talking about sound because in the field of environmental psychology, we've got 30, 35 years of research that shows that spending time in nature can be therapeutic if people are feeling stressed, uh, if they're feeling cognitively fatigued, they've sort of run out of brain power, if you like, and can't focus anymore, then having a break in nature seems to be able to restore um, those cognitive resources, the ability to focus, and it relieves the uh, symptoms of stress. But almost all of that research has been based on people's responses to viewing scenes of nature. Right. And we actually know very little about how people respond to listening to the sounds of nature. And of course, spending time in nature is this rich multi-sensory experience. Absolutely. So if we're, if we're going to try and bottle that and bring it to people, we need to understand how each part of it works. And there's been um, some incredible work done here uh, in the University of Exeter by my colleague Sarah Bell, who's looked at a lot of um, uh, the way that sounds can play a role in people who have uh, visual impairments and their okay. interactions with yeah. nature. And other people in the UK have looked at specifically the, the, the role that the sounds of nature might play. But we don't have really any sort of granularity in, in that research. Okay. So that's what the Forest 404 experiment was designed to do. And we started to we essentially took quite a sort of reductionist approach to this. We said, okay, if we take sounds of different environments, different types of sounds, the sounds of the landscape, which might be rain falling on trees or waves breaking on a beach, and then we take the sounds of fauna, like birdsong, yeah. and, and these rich sort of keynote-type sounds that define landscapes, if we split them apart and people listen to them on their own, what kind of effects do we see? Okay. And then if we put them back together... How do the, what kind of interactions do we see? for example, is listening to the sound of a dawn chorus enhanced, on average, if there's a stream there or if the wind's blowing through the trees? How do we elicit different types of emotion by putting these sounds together?
So that's the way that we designed the experiment. And, and the simple answer is that we expect that the sounds of nature will have a similar effect to viewing scenes of nature, that okay. they will have these restorative properties. But we don't really understand any of those other relationships yet. And that's where a big database, um, like the Forest 404 experiment, six, seven and a, seven and a half thousand people, um, will provide us the ability to start to understand that. Okay, that sounds really exciting. Really interesting that you say that there's sort of 30 years worth of research there, but it hasn't covered the sounds yet because you sort of, I hope, I guess what you're trying to get out of this is that it's a more accessible way for people to enjoy nature as opposed to the visual, visual side of things. Sound really is available in a much more easy way. I think that's an incredible point to make that when we, especially when we think about virtual reality and bringing experiences of nature to people with this new technology. Yeah, lots of opportunities. But but the issue with that as a delivery mechanism is that we shut people off. So it's not easy at the moment to make VR a social and shared experience. Yeah. What's different with sound is that lots of people can can enjoy sound at the same time and there's new technologies that use binaural sound recordings and... um, the way that VR headsets can now render sound, I can put a sound source in one corner of the room, and then when you move around that room, the sound will always come from that source. There isn't a speaker there. Um, So I can give you this incredible sense of scale and of space just with sound. Um, And that lends itself potentially to uses in places like clinical settings, where actually shutting patients off um, may not be that available but we can start to introduce things into a clinical environment like diurnal soundscapes so okay. that people wake up to the sounds of a dawn chorus that 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 oh, soundscape wow. evolves through the day and then in the evening we have a different set of sounds and at night time equally so without doing um too much with vision we can start to bring some of these outdoor therapeutic markers inside okay. Yeah, so that's really interesting. It's sort of um, the idea that you can really emanate that kind of outdoor environment, but within potentially a clinical setting. So what kind of uh, results might you be able to talk about at this stage then? I'd love to be able to lift the lid on (laughs) all of our analyses, but of course I can't until it's published. But I can sort of, yeah, disclose the broad pictures which are emerging. And one of the things which we expect to be able to detect was this impact of lived experience. So there's a body of literature, Kevin Gaston at the Environment and Sustainability Institute over on the Exeter's Penryn campus has done a lot of work um, looking at this idea of an extinction of experience, that if people don't spend time in nature, don't get to know nature when they're younger, that it will impact on their behaviours, their connection to nature when they're older. We expected with our large sample size to be able to detect that. What we weren't expecting was the size of that relationship. In our data, it's coming through as being absolutely crucial to be able to derive therapeutic benefits from sound. You, to a large extent, need to be able to recall memories um, of having experienced this sound in the past, positive memories. And this, for me, sort of lays bare a very terrifying thought that actually... We move forward as a society with increasingly impoverished interactions with nature. Actually, our ability to use nature as a public health resource, as a a source of restoration, will diminish too. 
Um, Gosh, and yeah. the fact that we're seeing that in sound is, and seeing it in sound so clearly is a real wake-up call, Definitely. I think. Um, and also places emphasis on the kind of mitigation strategies that we might put in place to start to get people experiencing sound. So that's one thing. Um, the other thing that's coming through is that all sounds are certainly not created equal. So if we, <laughs> if we take that subjectivity out of it, some people like sounds, some don't, some sure. people have memories and those memories are key. But beyond that, sounds of the landscape are rated as less therapeutic than sounds of fauna and typically that means okay. sounds of birdsong for us. When we put the two together, we do see some of these interaction effects that, that one can impact the other. But really we sort of see this hierarchy between sounds of landscape and then sounds of fauna. And that's been really interesting. And I, I think we, we're probably the first people to be able to show that on quite a large, robust scale. And because of the way that we designed our experiment, we're able to pick apart these different factors. The other thing that we did, which we haven't seen anyone else do, is include these cultural interpretations of sound. So we used poems which... Uh, exemplified the environments, the biomes that we were testing. And one of the actors from the Forest 404 series, Pippa Hayward, who other people might know her from Green Wing, she's a sort of um, an incredible British thespian. And uh, she read these poems and we included those and interacted those with our sounds of nature. And poems actually get a bit of a kicking in terms of their restorative potential, but that's not the whole picture. Because when we start to include them with the sounds of nature actually, their ratings and people's um, likelihood to enjoy them really increases. So, so we've got lots going on there, and actually the biggest challenge now is to, is to turn what, quite a complicated set of analyses into a coherent picture. Yeah, well, that sounds like you've got a lot to play with there. Um, that's all really interesting, just from an initial peek at it. It's such an exciting data set then. I really, I guess the, your middle point um, about... Uh, fauna being sort of <laughs> hierarchically higher on the sound impact than landscapes, I suppose coming at it from a conservation perspective is is sort of what you'd expect in the um, in that a lot of people really see you know charismatic species and things like that as as being more impactful but your your first point i really i wasn't expecting to be such a such a high impact of of memory based um, interaction so it's that's really quite surprising um, I, I, I agree and it you know really the fear you know to extrapolate the idea of the ex extinction of experience and you'd be familiar with this from a conservation perspective is that the baseline therefore shifts yeah that if people are used to not experiencing nature and subsequent generations experience less and less they take their interaction with nature as standard yeah and then it just disappears really quickly it, yeah I mean you can imagine over a couple of centuries which is the world the future world that forest yeah. 404 is based in is based in is exactly just an extrapolation of those trends and for me you know our sort of core business at the European Centre for Environment and Human Health where I'm based um physically based I should say is is to, to understand and operationalize nature as a therapeutic tool but of course if we're experiencing nature less and less and that turns out to be a really critical factor in how we're able to 
leverage its therapeutic potential, we might end up in a future world where actually nature doesn't have these therapeutic properties. Um, I should make a distinction there too, that whilst I'm based at the European Centre for Environment and Human Health, I'm funded by the Welcome Centre for Cultures and Environments of Health, which is based up at Exeter's main campus in Streatham. Um, And I, you know, I, I couldn't be doing this project without the sort of perspectives that the Welcome Centre brings. So it, 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 it's really focused on understanding how, how these cultural factors impact our interactions with health. Um, and for me, that means bringing those ideas into nature and, and really starting to, rather than as scientists going off and designing experiments behind closed doors and, yeah. um, and not listening to people who might be able to benefit <laughs> from the findings, actually we make sure that our whole conversation and the design of our studies happens with people, with people with lived experience and that they inform that. And Forest 404, I think, has been a real triumph because we had the University of Bristol involved, we had the BBC, we had public engagement groups, we had uh, the Open University. It really was this sort of multi-partner yeah. collaboration and that's the way you, I think we have to tackle these these complex issues mm, it's really insightful as you say a key real big triumph with the engagement there on on that one i think and yeah a definite eye-opener that subject on i i'm fairly new to the idea of oceans and and sort of natural therapeutic methods but i hadn't really considered the um the angle that you'd you'd need the memories there to make it work so it's a real a massive challenge that most of the most of the science hadn't really, I guess, taken into account yet. So, important side of it. I mean, what, what's fascinating from my perspective as well is that none of this is new. You yeah, know, the ancient <laughs> Persians, the ancient Greeks, the Romans, everyone, um, sort of, in in uh, these ancient cultures, recognised the fact that there was this symbiosis between healthy nature and human health. Absolutely, uh, and somehow we've we've forgotten that and to some extent you could blame that on the rise of techno medicine in the last century we've very much focused on the bodies as um as as vehicles that we can fix and that surgeons to some extent become the mechanic and if something breaks let's fix it and we've forgotten you know that that those sort of deeper connections perhaps and a more holistic approach to health and and nature for me is just just part of that but but what's really interesting is the way that the evidence that we're now generating for the impacts that nature can have on health actually echoes some of these very early theories that were coming out um uh around you know a couple of millennia ago and yet now we're actually able to to put some real sort of robust data and scientific reasoning behind them and the effects that we see are very similar Okay, so just maybe headed back then onto the subject of science communication, perhaps, with how you came into this stuff and where your background lies. I was just really curious. This is an area that I'm quite interested in. um, With what your thoughts are on where science communication methods might be headed, what the sort of best ways are that we tackle that going into the future? So I suppose over the last 15 years, there's been a revolution, I think, in science communication and there's n- it's not a coincidence that that has um, occurred at the same time as the sort of increase in, in ability, the democratisation of digital tools to help people disseminate their research. And for me, what was astonishing when I was at university was 
how bad people were at talking about their science, that we would have these incredible guest lectures, um, you know, the sort of rock stars of o ocean and atmosphere science at the time, and I'd have read their papers, and then when they arrived, they would deliver the driest, most boring lecture, and I would come out feeling completely deflated. Um, and so I think I always wanted to be able to encourage scientists to, to, to open up their research more. And I think now that I've worked with it so closely, what I see is that almost everyone, even if they work in an incredibly obscure or esoteric field, has a compelling message to tell, has something to communicate. And not everyone is a natural-born communicator, but that doesn't mean that you have to be sat in front of a microphone or sat in front of a video camera doing it. Um, and I think it's that, it's, for me, it's the ability for anyone to write a blog about what they're doing. You know, and, and I actually am making use a lot these days of statistics blogs um, and people sharing insights into the work that they're doing. And I think communication doesn't just have to be between academic and the public, the public being anyone who doesn't work in science. It actually, a lot of the time, can be peer-to-peer. -peer. Um, it can be to relatively niche areas. And my perspective is that everyone should be talking about the research they're doing. They should be trying to make the work they're doing accessible because you never know what kind of collaboration might come out of that, what kind of opportunity. And that these days, you know, if you're that way inclined, you can pick up a mobile phone and record a podcast or... Um, you can do a webcast, you can self-host this stuff, you can upload to YouTube for free. Um, I love playing around with information graphics and there are so many tools to help you do that. There's also the ability now to make those dynamic fairly easily. So you can really start to take a lot of the time either you know, dense and hard to understand processes or graphics or data or whatever it is and really you know, help people understand what you're doing. And ultimately, almost all of our work is publicly funded, and yet probably about 1% of the public have the ability to work out what we're doing because we make it so hard for them. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, I, I think the trends, I think the trends for me really are that it's at everyone's fingertips now, and we all have a duty to do it. Yeah, okay. It's a very inspirational thought. So thanks very much for talking to us today, Alex. It's really, really exciting stuff. Thanks for having me. So what a fascinating chat there. Thanks to Alex for coming on. If you want to find out more about the episode, you can go to the show notes that can be found on the Extramarine blog. Alex also mentioned the Forest 404 experiment. I'd highly recommend taking a look at this and having a listen to the podcast series, which can be found on the BBC website. It's accompanied me on many a walk recently. And it's a really interesting listen. I'll make sure all of that is also included in the show notes. We're going to be having a bit of a break for now, but we hope to be back with you soon with more episodes. So until then, goodbye.